Chapter 4B of The Shake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shake by E. M. Hull. Chapter 4B. With a twisting heave of his whole body, he shot the Arab over his head, who landed with a dull thud and lay still while the men who had been holding the colt dashed in and secured him before he was aware of his liberty. Diana looked towards the fallen man. A little crowd were gathered around him, and her heart beat faster as she thought that he was dead. Dead so quickly, and only a moment before he had been so full of life and strength. Death meant nothing to these savages, she thought bitterly, as she watched the limp body being carried away by three or four men who argued violently over their burden. She glanced at the sheikh. He seemed perfectly unconcerned, and did not even look in the direction of the man who had fallen. On the contrary, he laughed, and, turning to Yusef, put his hand on his shoulder and nodded towards the colt. Diana gave a gasp. He spared no one. He was going to make the young man take his chance, as the rough rider had taken his. She knew that the lieutenant rode well, as did all Ahmed ben Hassan's followers, and that his languid manner was only a pose, but he looked so young and boyish, and the risk seemed enormous. She had seen colts broken before many times, but never a colt so madly savage as this one but to Yusef the chance was evidently welcome. With an answering laugh he swaggered out into the arena, where the men greeted him with shouts. There was the same procedure as before, and Yusef bounded up lightly into the saddle. This time, instead of rearing, the frightened beast dashed forward in a wild effort to escape, but the mounted men, closing up, headed him into the middle of the ring again, and he went back to his first tactics with a rapidity that was too much for the handsome lad on his back, and in a few moments he was thrown heavily. With a shrill scream the colt turned on him open-mouthed, and Yusef flung up one arm to save his face. But the men reached him in time, dragging the colt from him by main force. He rose to his feet unsteadily and limped to the tents behind. Diana could not see him easily for the throng around him. Again she looked at the sheik and ground her teeth. He was stooping to light a cigarette from a match that Gaston was holding, and then they walked together nearer to the colt. The animal was now thoroughly maddened, and it was increasingly difficult to hold him. They went up close to the struggling, yelling grooms, and the next minute Diana saw Gaston sitting firmly in the empty saddle. The little man rode magnificently, and put up a longer fight than the others had done, but at last his turn came, and he went flying over the colt's head. He came down lightly on his hands and knees, and scrambled to his feet in an instant amidst a storm of shouts and laughter. Laughing himself, he came back to the shake with a shrug of shoulders and outspread eloquent hands. They spoke together for a moment, too low for Diana to hear, and then Ahmed ben Hassan went again into the middle of the ring. 
Diana's breath came more quickly. She guessed his intention before he reached the colt, and she moved forward from under the awning and joined Gaston, who was wrapping his handkerchief round a torn hand. "'Monseigneur will try?' she asked a little breathlessly. Gaston looked at her quickly. "'Try, madame?' he repeated in a queer voice. "'Yes, he will try.' Again the empty saddle was filled, and a curious hush came over the watching crowd. Diana looked on with bright, hard eyes, her heart beating heavily. She longed passionately that the colt might kill him, and at the same time, illogically, she wanted to see him master the infuriated animal. The sporting instinct in her acknowledged and responded to the fight that was going on before her eyes. She hated him, and she hoped that he might die, but she was forced to admire the wonderful horsemanship that she was watching. The sheik sat like a rock, and every effort made to unseat him was unsuccessful. The colt plunged wildly, made furious blind dashes backward and forward, stopping dead in the hope of dislodging his rider, twirling round suddenly until it seemed impossible that he could keep his feet. Then he started rearing straight up, his forelegs beating the air higher and higher, and then down to commence again without a moment's breathing space. Diana heard Gaston's breath whistle through his teeth. "'Look, madame!' he cried sharply, and Diana saw the shake give a quick glance behind him, and as the colt shot up again, almost perpendicular, with a jerk he pulled him deliberately over backwards, leaping clear with a tremendous effort as the horse crashed to the ground. He was in the saddle again almost before the dazed creature had struggled to its feet. And then began a scene that Diana never forgot. It was the final struggle that was to end in defeat for either man or horse, and the sheik had decided that it was not to be for the man. It was a punishment of which the untamed animal was never to lose remembrance the savagery and determination of the man against the mad determination of the horse. It was a hideous exhibition of brute strength and merciless cruelty. Diana was almost sick with horror from the beginning. She longed to turn away, but her eyes clung fascinated to the battle that was going on. The hush that had fallen on the crowd had given way to roars of excitement, and the men pressed forward eagerly to give back precipitately when the still-fighting animal's heels flashed too near. Diana was shaking all over, and her hands were clenching and unclenching as she stared at the man, who seemed a part of the horse he was sitting so closely. Would it never end? She did not care now which killed the other, so that it would only stop. The man's endurance seemed mere bravado. She clutched Gaston's arms with a hand that was wringing wet. It is horrible, she gasped, with an accent of loathing. It is necessary, he replied quietly. Nothing can justify that, she cried passionately. Your pardon, madame, he must learn. He killed a man this morning, threw him, and what you call in English, savaged him. Diana hid her face in her hands. I can't bear it, she said pitifully. A few moments later Gaston clicked his tongue against his teeth. See, si, madame, it is over, he said gently. She looked up fearfully. 
The sheik was standing on the ground beside the colt, who was swaying slowly from side to side, with heaving sides and head held low to the earth, dripping blood and foam. And as she looked, he tottered and collapsed, exhausted. There was a rush from all sides, and Gaston went towards his master, who towered above the crowd around him. Diana turned away with an exclamation of disgust. It was enough to have seen a display of such brutality. It was too much to stand by while his fellow savages acclaimed him for his cruelty. She went slowly back into the tent, shaken with what she had seen, and stood in undecided hesitation beside the divan. The helpless feeling that she so often experienced swept over her with renewed force. There was nowhere that she could get away from him, no privacy, no respite. Day and night she must endure his presence with no hope of escape. She closed her eyes in a sudden agony, and then stiffened at the sound of his voice outside. He came in laughing, a cigarette dangling from one blood-stained hand, while with the other he wiped the perspiration from his forehead, leaving a dull red smear. She shrank from him, looking at him with blazing eyes. "'You are a brute, a beast, a devil. I hate you,' she choked furiously." For a moment an ugly look crossed his face, and then he laughed again. "'Hate me by all means, ma belle, but let your hatred be thorough. I detest mediocrity,' he said lightly, as he passed on into the other room. She sank down on to the couch. She had never felt so desperate, so powerless. She stared straight before her, shivering, as she went over the scene she had just witnessed, her fingers picking nervously at the jade-green silk of her dress. She longed for some power that would deaden her feelings and blunt her capacity for suffering. She looked at Gaston with hard eyes when he came in. He had approved of what the sheik had done, would have done it himself if he had been able. They were all alike. "'The man who was hurt first, she asked abruptly, with a touch of her old hauteur in her voice. "'Is he dead?' "'Oh, no, madame. He has concussion, but he will be all right. They have hard heads, these Arabs.' "'And Youssef?' Gaston grinned. "'Le petit sheik has a broken collarbone. It is nothing. A few days' holiday to be petted in his harem, et voilà!' "'His harem?' echoed Diana in surprise. "'Is he married?' "'Mais oui, madame. He has two wives.' At Diana's exclamation, he shrugged deprecatingly. "'Que voulez-vous? It is the custom of the country,' he said tolerantly, with the air of conceding a melancholy fact with the best grace possible. The customs of the country was dangerous ground, and Diana changed the subject hastily. "'Where did you learn to ride, Gaston?' "'In a racing stable at Auteuil, madame, when I was a boy.' Then I was five years in the French cavalry. After that I came to Monseigneur. And you have been with him how long? Fifteen years, madame. Fifteen years, she repeated wonderingly. Fifteen years here in the desert? Here and elsewhere, madame, he answered rather more shortly than usual, and with a murmur of excuse left the tent. 
Diana leaned back against the cushions with a little sigh. Gaston need not have been afraid that she was trying to learn his master's secrets from him. She had not fallen as low as that. The mystery of the man whose path had crossed hers so terribly seemed to augment instead of lessen as the time went on. What was the power in him that compelled the devotion of his wild followers and the little French ex-cavalryman? She knit her head in perplexity, and was still puzzling over it when he came back. Immaculate and well-groomed, he was very different from the disheveled, blood-stained savage of half an hour before. She shot a nervous glance at him, remembering her outburst, but he was not angry. He looked grave, but his gravity seemed centered in himself, as he passed his lean fingers tenderly over his smooth chin. She had seen Aubrey do similarly hundreds of times. Occidental or Oriental, men seemed very much alike. She waited for him to speak, and waited vainly. One of the taciturn fits to which she had grown accustomed had come over him, hours sometimes in which he simply ignored her altogether. The evening meal was silent. He spoke once to Gaston, but he spoke in Arabic, and the servant replied only with a nod of compliance. And after Gaston was gone he did not speak for a long time, but sat on the divan, apparently absorbed in his thoughts. Restless, Diana moved about the tent listlessly examining objects that she knew by heart, and flirting over the pages of the French magazine she had read a dozen times. Usually she was thankful for his silent moods. Tonight, with a woman's perversity, she wanted him to speak. She was unstrung, and the utter silence oppressed her. She glanced over her shoulder at him once or twice, but his back looked unapproachable. Yet when he called her, with a swift revulsion of feeling, she wished he had kept silent. She went to him slowly. She was too unnerved to-night to struggle against him. What would be the use, she thought wearily. It would only end in defeat, as it always did. He pulled her down on the divan beside him, and before she realized what he was doing, slipped a long jade necklace over her head. For a moment she looked stupidly at the wonderful thing, almost unique in the purity of its color, and the marvellous carving on the uniform square pieces of which it was composed. And then with a low cry she tore it off and flung it on the ground. "'How dare you!' she gasped. "'You don't like it?' he asked in his low, unruffled voice, his eyebrows raised in real or assumed surprise. "'Yet it matches your dress.' and lightly his long fingers touched the folds of green silk swathed across the youthful curve of her breast. He glanced at an open box filled with shimmering stones on a low stool beside him. "'Pearls are too cold, and diamonds too banal for you,' he said slowly. "'You should wear nothing but jade. It is the color of the evening sky against the sunset of your hair.' End of chapter 4b